The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missiodei.org. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, this is the word of the Lord. No, I'm joking. Thanks be to, we are cursed because one man listened to the voice of his wife. That'll preach. That's not all we're reading this morning though, but nonetheless, let's keep reading. Verse 17 through 19, we're gonna read it all the way through. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the proclamation of his promises. So in this series, we're talking about work, and primarily what we're trying to do is see how our work reflects who God is. We've talked about how we've been made in his image, and being made in his image dictates that we have certain attributes of God that are communicable or that we share with him. Work is one of those attributes. God is a worker, and he has created a people who work. We all work, and we've looked at First two attributes of God in the reflection of our work, one was God as starter. That was the first one, God as a starter or creator. And some of the things that we saw was that God created ex nihilio, out of nothing God made. He is the ultimate creator because he does not rely on substance or materials or inspiration to create. Out of his own being, he has made. And what he has done in us is he has created in order to employ further artistry and design. What we saw is that we were discovered inside an undercreated garden, right? There was defined boundaries and limitations of Eden when God had placed man to work it and keep it. And part of the call of man was to push those boundaries out, to reflect him as a starter and as a creator. And so We looked at how God made, created, but left creation with stretches of empty canvas for us to work in. And then the second way that we saw was God not just as a starter, but God as a sustainer. And the way that that reflected for us was that our possession of God's creation, which was a work handed over for work, causes us to desire to hand it back to him in a better state. Good sustaining work is when we receive work that is not ours and we, dis- we pursue to hand that back to them in a better state. And so when we work, we're oftentimes working with things that aren't our own, right? It's not our business, it's not our company, it's not our whatever. And so we're taking someone else's work and sustaining it and the goal of that should be to hand it back better than how we received it. So we looked at God as a starter God is a sustainer. This morning we're looking at God in the midst of struggle. Now it kind of seems weird or contradictive when you say God is a struggler. 
But what we have to realize is that God does ordain struggling. We talked uh, in the first sermon, I made the statement that we are in the best possible of all worlds. We're in plan A. We're not in plan B. This, what we find ourselves in in this current world, in this fallen state, is not some type of other option against what God had originally had in mind. We are in the plan A of God, and God has ordained sovereignly the reality of struggle and suffering. We can see this simply in the Egyptian uh, narrative of Exodus. So we have these Israelites, God's people, who were in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. They were being oppressed by the nation of Egypt, and God raises up a prophet in the person of Moses to bring deliverance um, of the Israelite people out of the land of Egypt. And now, 400 years of oppression, God raises then up a prophet, a leader, to lead them out into the promised land, into his blessing, into the good gifts that he had promised them. And, and this struggle, this suffering, this oppression that they had experienced, was it in vain? Was God unable to do something about it for 400 years? Was God too weak to intervene? What are the questions? What we have to discover is that God ordained that suffering and struggle for a purpose. And we're brought into the reason why, as God says, that I will deliver them for my namesake. He says, for my glory, I will bring them out of the land of Egypt. Moses, you will lead my people out of slavery in Egypt so that the world might see that I have an outstretched arm and a mighty hand and will deliver a people for my namesake and for my glory. See, in the midst of suffering, there is a purpose for the revelation of the glory of God to be seen by the earth around us. We are benefactors of that pursuit. The Israelites were benefactors of God's pursuit of his glory. Me and you as Christians, as we see and taste the sweetness of salvation, are benefactors, ultimately not in that God, we are the center of God's universe, but God is the center of his own universe, and his pursuit of his glory dictates that we benefit in the salvation of our own souls. You see, God delivers us out of struggle out of suffering so that his glory might be demonstrated. And praise God, you and I are infinite benefactors of that pursuit. But God has ordained struggle, God has ordained suffering so that his name might be glorified. It's out of struggle and out of suffering that God's name is being brought out into praise. So if God has ordained, we even see this in process of sanctification. Like, look at how, the, look at the cross, right? If God didn't desire struggle and suffering to happen, then at the cross, boom, everything right then and there would have been made new. Why not at the cross did he not just New heavens, new earth, new everything, we're good to go. Jesus died once and for all on the cross. He declares, my work is finished. I have, I have uh, accomplished the full will of the Father. And so right then and there, we could have had new heavens and new earth, but that's not how God works. What has God done? He has allowed for us to continue in 
struggle and suffering. He has allowed us to continue in this progressive sanctification, in this progressive pursuit of the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised us. When we look at our Christian life in sanctification, God uses that struggle to see the image of the Son of God developed in us. You see, this image that we were born, or that we were created in, God created man in his image, and there's aspects of that image that we reflect, right? We talked about this with work, but the problem is when we sinned, we marred that image, we perverted that image. That image is still intact, but it is marred. And what the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian is to see that image restored and made new so that is fully reflected and represented once again. Our, our kind of end goal, like what's the end goal of this whole thing of Christian life? Well, it's that we might perfectly reflect the image of God like we once did. And so God has ordained struggle in the midst of our own sanctification to see that process come uh, to fruition. Right, as we go through sanctification, as we go through struggle and suffering, that is a time for the image of God to continually being renewed in us that we marred and we perverted because of our sin. So let's unpack the scene from Genesis three a little bit that we just read earlier. Because what happened here is I kind of entered us into the middle of a story where if you ever watch a movie where like the opening scene is like gunfire and, and all kinds of violence and war and you kind of have to go back to see how did we even get here in the first place, right? So that's kind of what we did. We entered in and God's just cursing people, right? So this, that's what the Bible did, right? I didn't do that. God did that. He started cursing people. Let's find out why he did that, right? So Genesis 3, we're gonna unpack it. First, what we have is in one and two, God is creating. So God is speaking, and he's creating the light and the darkness, the dry lands and the waters. He's creating the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, and then Ultimately, when he comes to make man, it's no longer this spoken distance of, of creation, but it's this intimate breathing in of man. So he takes the dust of the earth and he forms man and he gets close and intimate and he breathes the breath of life into Adam's lungs. And so God made man in his image. And we already talked about this included the attribute of work. God then called and ordained for man to reflect him in Work, work is the first call to man, and from it is the revelation and the provision of all of God's good gifts, right? So the first thing that God does for man is says, Adam, you're going to work. That is what you're going to do. And it was from that calling that we see even marriage, because God showed this revelation to Adam that you need a helper. To accomplish what I've called you to do, you need a helper. So he said, go ahead and search the beasts of the field. See if you can find one that would be suitable. Adam searched, he found none. So God put Adam to sleep, pulled out a rib, made Eve. Eve is the perfect helper to Adam. And so even marriage was revealed and provided because of the initial calling of work. Then we have family, we have all these different things of God's good gifts to man is revealed through and provided by, first and foremost, the call of man to work. And then God placed man in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says to work it and to keep it. God instructed Adam to cultivate that which he had created. This included both creative and sustaining work. 
And so in the midst of the garden, what we have is all of this beauty, right? All of, of this creation of God. And he says, here, all of this I give to you. Anything you set your eyes on, this is for your pleasure. Take and eat, work it, and cultivate it. You can feast upon anything that I've made here. It's under your dominion. It's under your authority. Adam, this is yours. I've given everything to you except one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He spoke to Adam and to Eve and he said, this one thing, don't touch it. But what happened? He listened to his wife. That's what happened. Y'all need to lighten up. Anyway, Adam, <laughs> the serpent came into the garden and he started speaking to Eve and Adam was right next to her. Right, and we can talk about where Adam failed. He did fall. He did ultimately fail, and his responsibility was pushed off. That's why we're cursed. But the serpent came in, and he, she, the serpent tried to deceive the woman and build in her distrust and doubt with questions. Look, one thing, church. There's a our culture is big into asking questions, and there's a lot of Christian speakers, pastors, authors who are asking questions. Look. It's okay to ask questions if the end purpose of those questions is the pursuit of actual knowledge. But the serpent himself used questions not to pursue actual knowledge, but to build distrust and to build doubt into the heart of God's image bearers. There are many pastors, authors, speakers who ask questions not to pursue truth and answers and knowledge, but to build doubt and distrust in your heart. You have to discern what's happening in our culture today. But Eve, she listened to the serpent. She took the fruit and she ate. Then she turned to Adam who was with her and he ate also. So God came and in the midst of their rebellion, he cursed the work of man. Adam was not simply to work in the cultivation of the garden. You see, he was able to radically enjoy the fruit of it. He wasn't just called to work and not get paid. He wasn't just called to, to labor without wages. No, he was called to cultivate it and to radically enjoy the fruit of it. You see, all this pleasure was laid out before of him. All of this joy was laid out before of him. All of this goodness of God's hand was laid before him. All but this one tree and its fruit. And Adam rejected his responsibility and God cursed his work. You see, we're a lot like Adam. We don't trust God because ultimately we believe God's holding out on us. We believe God is holding out on us. Look, the reality of what God has done for us is he's laid us, he's placed us in a garden where we're, we're pleasure and joy and goodness and delight that our physical minds can't even wrap themselves around exist. And we can indulge and we can take and we can eat and we can consume. And But God has laid before all of us these laws and these commands. And what we do is we look at the laws and commands and we reject all the goodness of what God has given us and we say, no, 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 no. What's behind 
that door? What's behind this law, this command? You're trying to keep something from me, God. When we look at just simply sex and relationships, right? There's so many times where we say, okay, God doesn't want me to be happy. God doesn't want me to experience pleasure. God doesn't want me to have joy. I don't believe him. He's holding out on me. And ultimately, what we do is we believe that he is keeping from us so that we won't have deep joy and pleasure when in fact the very thing he is keeping us from is death itself. We don't trust him. And so we go and we eat the fruit. All of us, we sink our teeth in to the fruit of death because we believe God is holding out on us. God, what do you have that you're trying to keep from me? Wasn't this what Adam and Eve eventually at the end of their reasoning believed? God is holding out on us. There's this one tree and he said, if you eat of it, you will die. And they said, hmm, yeah, there's something there. There's something there. He's holding out on us. He doesn't actually want us to have pleasure and joy. He wants to keep good from us. And so they ate. How often do we do that in our own lives? When we reject the call of God to obey his laws and commands as burdensome, as oppressive, as keeping us from life, Look at our culture. They want to reject all of the laws and commands of God. They wanna reject his way of living, his standard of righteousness and holiness for whatever they wanna fabricate because they believe you, God, are trying to keep us from enjoying pleasure and their pursuit of pleasure ends up cultivating a culture where they are simply devouring one another. In the devouring of our brothers and our sisters and other image bearers, are we really seeing any type of good fruit from this? Are we really seeing joy and satisfaction? Are we really seeing pleasure abound? Are we just building our own prison cells and being content with living inside of them? You think God's law is a prison? God's law is life. Your standard of holiness is a death sentence. And so at the end of this, God comes and he, he curses man's work. He says, you didn't believe me, Adam, and now you are going to labor in your vocation. And so the main idea we see out of this Genesis 3 passage is this, is that in the cursing of our work, God causes the fruit of our labor to be brought through struggle. In the cursing of our work, God causes the fruit of our labor to be brought through struggle. You see, God declared to Adam that he would be able to still taste the fruit of his work, but not without struggle. Where Adam was once able to eat the fruit of the garden in pleasure, he would now eat it in pain. No longer would the delight of God's good gifts come from a communion with the Lord and a faithfulness in our calling. No, we would now have to struggle in our work by the sweat of our brow just to simply eat and survive. Our work would not be found fruitless because of our faithlessness, but the meager fruit we did eat would be at the end of strenuous labor. You see, God would still allow us to taste of his goodness but not without man first tasting the consequences of his sin. Think of the goodness and the mercy of God. 
that even in our rejection of his law and commands, even of our rejection of him as Lord, and our rebellion in our own pursuits to become like God, he says, you still will taste of my goodness. You still will taste of the fruit that I have given to you, but not without you first tasting your own sin. You see, this is where we find ourselves now. Our work is full of struggle. We still desire and pursue to taste the goodness of God, but not without the bitter taste of our own rebellion and sin. We are cursed to struggle in our labor. And I think that what we do is we reject that on so many different occasions, right? We as a people reject suffering, we reject struggle. We wanna flee as far away from it as we possibly can. And I think there's two primary reasons that we do this. The first reason is this. I believe that we reject struggle because of its absence of joy. We reject struggle because of its absence of joy. You see, we as people, as image bearers of God, are ultimate joy seekers. Rightfully so. We were designed to have joy. We were created to have joy, to be full of joy. And when we aren't experiencing that, we reject the circumstance that's inhibiting it. And what we do is we find our joy in temporal and finite worldly things. And so when, when, when struggle comes and we say, oh man, I really wanted that relationship or I really wanted that position at work or I really wanted that job or that career path or whatever it is you can put out there, right? I really wanted that because I believed that that was going to be joy or when it stopped being joy for me, I then rejected the circumstance inhibiting it. So I went on a different career path. I got a different relationship. I, did, I went to a different church. I did this, I did that, right? We reject the circumstance inhibiting what is bringing us or what we believe or deceive to believe is bringing us joy. You see, our source of joy must reach beyond our struggle. Our joy should be deeply rooted in who Jesus is. You see, God may not call us to work in a vocation of which we find joy, but he will never keep us from having joy. God may not call you to work in a vocation of which you find joy, but God will never keep you from having joy. You see, if you think that your vocation equals joy, you're deceived, and your well will dry up. The well that you run to to drink from for joy in your circumstance and what you do, it one day will dry up, I can guarantee you that. You see, God never promises us that we will actually work in things that bring us joy. No, he does promise us, though, that no matter what, we will have joy. We have to understand we can have joy not because of what we are doing, but because of whom we are doing it for. This is the essence of the Christian life, finding contentment in Christ and turning every circumstance in all of our work into living worship. Think about how this would change your vocation. Think about how this would change 
your work, if you didn't try to find joy in what you were doing or whom you were doing it with or what you were doing it for, but what you did is you found joy in the reality that your struggle, that your work, that your labor, that your vocation was a living act of worship unto God for the namesake of Jesus Christ who is an unceasing fountain of joy. That's a different perspective for work. Not that we have joy in what we do, but we have joy in whom we are doing it for. And then think, when we labor in that way, the fruit that's cultivated, that our coworkers get to taste and see that God is good that your family members get to taste and see that God is good, that your neighborhood gets to taste and see that God is good because you have first tasted the struggle of your own sin that you might feast upon the good fruit of God. So I think the main reason, one of the main reasons we reject struggle is because of absence of joy. I believe the second reason, primary reason we reject struggle is because of the existence of options. We reject struggle because of the existence of options. In the face of options, we still, we are, in the face of options, we will often choose not to struggle. Why would we, right? Why would we choose to continue in struggling? If we have options, why struggle? Right, if we have options with our marriage, with our relationships, if we have options with our occupation and vocation, if we have options with our church, why in the world would I continue in struggling? You see, we are a culture that is immersed with options. And it's in the midst of struggling that, that we are met with the highest temptation to flee to these other options, right? When your marriage is, in, is struggling and you guys are fighting, you're not getting along well, there's things that are tough and they're getting harder, what do we do? We, we are tempted to flee, we're tempted to go out to the bar and have a drink, we're tempted to flirt with the coworker on our lunch break, we're tempted to hide in isolation with our cell phone and what's happening is we're running away from the responsibility, from the covenant of our marriage because of struggle to other options. With our relationships, what do, what, what do we do, right? When every time there's struggle in our relationship, I don't need to stay here, I don't need to take this, I didn't ask for this, I've got other options. And the culture around you is championing, championing you to choose those other options instead of endure struggling and hardship. What about with the church? I get it, there's, how, there's like 80 some churches in Walnut Hills alone you could go to, right? You, you can go, and I can't tell you the amount of times that people have left Missio for whatever reason it is. Maybe it's because, uh, uh, let's see, let's, let me think of a few options people have told me. We're not, uh, uh, we're not ethnically diverse enough. Okay, guess what? I hate that we're not more ethnically diverse. Now, what does it take to become ethnically diverse? It takes work. It takes struggle. It takes hardship to become that. Now, you, can, you have options, so what do most people do? They go to a church that's already ethnically diverse because they don't want to struggle through the work that it takes to make this church that way. We wish you had more age diversity. We wish you had a better youth group. We wish you had 
X, Y, Z, you can name it. And the people will go to other churches that have it ultimately because they don't wanna get their hands dirty in the struggle that it takes to see the fruit of hard labor. What about relationships in the church? How many people, they abandon church because they can't do the hard work or pursue the struggling of reconciliation in relationships? Right, We're prim- we have a, a large single audience. A lot of our congregation are single people. I know there's dating. I'm still trying to get Missio Mingle patented up and on the line, right? So we, so, so we can equally yoke you with some people here. But here's, here's what we've got. We know that you guys will break up with one another. And we know that that breakup is gonna probably cause you to go to different missional communities. It might even cause one of you to go to a different church. Why? Because you wanna avoid struggle. Because you have options. Because you don't need to stay here. Because you don't have to endure this. And maybe it's not even on a dating spectrum. Maybe somebody just brought the wrong dish to your potluck, right? And it's just, you always get that one person who's like, oh, I found this new recipe online. And it's some type of bake thing, right? It's always a bake thing. I don't know why. If you come to my house, please, Lord God, do not try out a recipe on me. Do something faithful, something you know is good, something people have told you is good in the past. Don't try out something on me. But here's what we have to realize, is like there are people who will leave because they don't wanna pursue reconciliation and tough conversations. The church is a struggle because we should ultimately be about the good and benefit of the other, not the good and benefit of the self. But struggle makes us confront the reality of what it takes to be the good and benefit of the other. And what we will do, we bounce because we have options. What about with work? Man, when you, in, in your work, you've got options. How many times, potentially, are you at work updating your own resume? Because you're done with your boss. H- how many times at work are you trying to network on LinkedIn? What, one, I don't even know why LinkedIn exists. I don't understand it. It's the most useless thing on the internet to me. I'll never use it, but you all make me network with you, so great. I've got a network. But how many times are you thinking about the next move? How many times are you placing that next option in your back pocket? How many times are you having deceitful meetings with your bosses, pumping them up about how hard you're working, how hard you're gonna do this, boom, 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 but in a whole time in your back pocket, you've got another option cocked and ready to, look, ready to go. Right, we hate struggle. Our propensity is to opt out of struggle. But what we don't realize is that God uses the struggle to display the purposes of his will and the glory of his name. It is through struggle and suffering that we are able to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. It is through the refinery of struggle that Jesus is brought to the surface of our flesh. When we believe that we have options to not struggle, we will choose those other options. But this is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus embraced the struggle of his work for the joy that was set before him. Jesus embraced the struggle of his work for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, two says that looking to Jesus 
This was a command for us as the church, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise God that Jesus' joy was not in his circumstances, right? He wasn't running to fountains that would dry up. He wasn't running to uh, uh, these false promises of joy and satisfaction and pleasure in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his struggle, as he was marching up Calvary, his face was set as a flint, not because of the circumstance he found him in, but because he understood that the struggle of his work would accomplish the will of his father, it would purchase and redeem a bride, and that he would be seated at the right hand of God above all rulers and authorities as Lord of all. It was the joy that was set before him, that his fountain was in the very God of whom he tried to, he worked to accomplish his will, he was able to endure his circumstance. And praise God that Jesus has no other options. In the struggle of his work to purchase for himself a bride, Jesus remained faithful. You see, Jesus has one bride, one church, one will to fulfill, one glory to display, one name to be released from every mouth that he alone is Lord. The devil tried to give him options in the desert, but he didn't take them. As Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil tried to give him options. He tried to say, look, Jesus, you're struggling. You're suffering right now. Let me give you options to get out of this. Here, this stone, I know that you're the Son of God. You can turn this into a bread and eat. You haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Feast upon this bread. Jesus said, no, devil, I'm not taking it. I won't take these other options. I have one mission, one will to accomplish one bride to purchase and redeem. I will eat only of God's word, which is my bread of life. The devil tried to take him to a mountaintop and show him these powers, these authorities, these rulers. He said, Jesus, if you give up now, I'll give you all of this. Everything that you see, that your eye gazes upon, you can have. You have another option here, Jesus. Take it. And Jesus said, no, I won't. I won't do it. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it's perceived that Jesus was looking for another option, his prayer, as he was dripping sweats of, of blood from his brow, he said, Father, if there is another way, let me have it, but if not, your will be done, not mine. He was, is, and always will be faithful despite the struggle. Think of the struggle of his bride. At best, the church is a harlot. We pursue other lovers. We pursue other pleasures. We chase after that which is not God. And we think, oh, we'll have something better if we go over here and we feast over here or we occupy our time over here or we search for joy over here. And Jesus is what? Continually standing there, faithful, saying, no, you're my bride. I don't have other options. I'm not making other options. I'm staying faithful to you. I will pursue you. My blood was poured out for you. I'm committed to this no matter how reckless you choose to live your life, no matter how much you believe that you'll find something better other than me, and you come running back saying, Jesus, please take me back. Jesus, please forgive me. Please have mercy. Jesus is standing there saying, my blood's already purchased you. And think of the struggle of his kingdom. 
We fracture his kingdom. We divide his kingdom. The church brings shame to the gospel by allowing pulpiteers to stand up here and try to preach some kind of self-help message while in the background they're committing sin and fornication and adultery. We put them up there and we pay them millions of dollars to tickle the ears of this world instead of preach the gospel. Think of the shame that the church has brought to the message of the cross. Think of the shame that our own lives have given a false testimony of the faithfulness and love of God as people have encountered us in our sin, as we've entrapped others in our sinful pursuits. Jesus doesn't have other options. It's not because they're absent or because he can't create them. It's because he has purposed in his mind to have only one. And that's an assurance and a guarantee that we can stand on. Jesus is not going anywhere, even though we try to run. Praise God that Jesus doesn't reject struggle. Praise God that Jesus' source of joy is not found in how faithful we are to him. And praise God, you and I are his only option. So how can we walk this out as Christians? How can we suffer and struggle faithfully? I think that there's three ways. There's tons of things that we can unpack. I'm gonna give us three concrete ways that we can do this. Number one is be humble in the midst of struggle. Be humble in the midst of struggle. Listen, church, God doesn't owe you anything. God does not owe you anything. This world does not owe you anything. No matter how hard you work, no matter what you've got written on that piece of paper, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much power you think you've got, the world and God owes you nothing. Here's what God owed to us, was to crush us under the heel of his boot. God's mercy to us is that we get to benefit from his good gifts. Everything that we have in our occupation, in our relationships, in our churches, in our community, everything that we have is because God has been merciful to us. So don't think in the midst of struggle that you should be owed something better. Don't think you're above the struggling that you are facing because what we might dismiss is the reality that God is possibly blessing us in the midst of our struggle so on the other side of it, we come out more conformed to the image of Jesus. Number two, be faithful in the midst of struggle. Be faithful in the midst of struggle. When we are struggling, it doesn't mean that we should give up. It doesn't mean that we're not right damn in the middle of God's plan. God is not looking for you to be fruitful as much as he's looking for you to be faithful. When you look at the stories of the Bible, when you look at men like David and Joseph, when you look at them, what you see is not men who are being fruitful, it's men who are just being faithful. Joseph, who was just serving in prison, serving well, gets elevated to the right-hand man of Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And God used that to be fruitful. God used that to save Israel so that Christ might be born out of the line of David, out of the tribe of Judah. For David himself, he was just being a faithful shepherd. And God came and he exalted him to be the king of Israel. 
God is not looking for you to be fruitful as much as he is looking for you to be faithful in the circumstance you are currently in. We labor, God brings the growth. Be faithful in the midst of your struggle. Number three, be reliant in the midst of struggle. Be reliant in the midst of struggle. One of the greatest blessings of our struggling is that it should cultivate an awareness of our deep need for him. A great blessing of God allowing us to struggle is that it should cultivate an awareness of our deep need for him. Suffering is a call to trust God and not life-sustaining props of this world that are burning away. In the midst of our struggle, may God show us that we had a, what we had attempted to place our trust in is burning away, is fading. And may he show us that relying on him will never leave us devastated. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your gospel. Thank you for <clears throat> Jesus who, in the midst of his struggling, stayed faithful. He didn't give up. He didn't opt out. He stayed faithful. And we are great benefactors of his finished work. I pray that when we are weak, you are our strength. When we wanna give up, you help us endure. Lord, when we are struggling, you bring us comfort and peace. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make the promises of God real and evident in our own lives. Let us experience this peace and this comfort and this joy. Show us, open our eyes to the things of this world that we're putting our trust in, that we're hoping will bring us joy, but that will leave us fa failed and devastated. And let us run to the cross of Christ, that unending fountain. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.